<laughs> Hi, this is Paul Wilson, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Welcome, Paul. Uh, we're, we're pleased to, to have F. Paul Wilson with us tonight. Uh, we missed you at Necronomicon this year. I guess somebody had pointed you out as we were leaving on Sunday, so we're, we're glad to be able to get you all to ourselves tonight. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was around the whole weekend. Well, I left early on Sunday. We had a took the train home. But, yeah, we, uh, we saw you, I really we you in the cab or something. <laughs> how, how was the con for you? You had a, you had a good time this year? Yeah, that was my second time, and um, I mean, I, I, I'm a big Lovecraft fan. I have been for for forever, and uh, I followed it right up with uh, the being a guest at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. So it's just um, HPL all the time, all day. You know, it's just uh, uh, and I, I wanted to, you know, I was willing to participate in the convention, but nobody asked me to be on a panel, but that's, that's fine. You know, the, I enjoyed a lot of the panels and I, I went to a lot of them and even the Robert E. Howard panel was pretty good. Yeah. Well, we know a few people. We'll have to put in a word for, uh, for 2019. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I didn't go there to be on panels. I, you know, I, I went there basically just to, uh, I just love the I love the dealer room. I love I love the and I love you know people like Rick Lay and and I, I see them every two years and we talk about you know all sorts of esoteric pulp stuff and uh, it's a great time. It, it's a lot of fun. It's a really great convention. And it, you know it's small, so like you say, you, you know you just get together with people, you know, go out for a beer or whatever, and just kind of like talk about you know fiction and writing and you know there's so many you know talented and amazing people that come to the con it's, it's a really good one to go to yeah i uh i, I only went uh, the first time was in in uh, 2015 and you know i thought that this is great i mean how long has this been going on and yeah. you know, why, why didn't anybody tell me because it's, it's super absolutely no, I, the one in the, the one in 2013 was good too um a little up Crowd-wise, it was even smaller than 15 and then 17, but it was still great. Yeah, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know it existed back then. You know, I, I, I was going to, um, you know, Nikon was my summer convention. And uh, it's still, you know, it's I, I would still go back there again, but it hasn't worked out for me lately. So uh, I, I'm using, you know, Necronomicon as my summer convention. Nice. Very cool. Do you do a lot of other conventions or no? Yeah, I do more than I, I really <laughs> want to. Um, I just, it, it's sort of you get into a routine. Uh, I'm cutting back. I keep saying every year I'm going to cut back. <laughs> somehow, you know, I have one more next weekend, uh, this coming weekend, actually. It's Murder and Mayhem in uh, Milwaukee. No. And, um, and just, you know, last you know, last week, last month it was um, 
the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. But um, the thing is, my writing crosses a lot of genres. I, you know, the mystery crime people like me because the Repairman Jack does a lot of, you know, crime and noirish fiction. And then, you know, fantasy because I have all these fantasy elements going on. And even science fiction, I'm going, you know, I'm guesting at Marcon next year for the third time. And that's basically a science fiction fantasy convention. So, and, and I often go to uh, Romantic Times, which is a romance readers convention. Okay. And Repairman Jack has a lot of fans in the, in the romance community. And so it's, you know, I, I, I wind up going to all these conventions, and um, I, I love them all, really. I, I really love being out with my readers. But, um, you know, sometimes, you know, by, by the end of the year, you know, you're saying, okay, <laughs> one more, and then I, you know, then I have a couple of months off. Right, right. We, we have a, a sci-fi convention here in, uh, in Tucson. I think it's called uh, Tuscon. Uh, I think this, this year they had... Uh, 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 George R. R. Martin was here, and and it's relatively small. I think they only sell like maybe about two hundred tickets. Um, we'd love to. I'd, I'll throw your name out there. I'll I'll email those guys if you're uh, willing to make the trip. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I mean I I love Arizona, you know, yeah. and um, you know, and, and and George lives in New Mexico, so it's not you know a terrible trip for him, you know. Right. Actually, he's been doing more conventions. Um, lately and uh, he's uh he was at the world uh, horror convention on the queen mary um in california and he's going to be at uh, thriller fest I, I believe he's going to be uh, a guest at thriller fest in july next year i always go to thriller fest too because you know all my fictions really considered thrillers and in when you boil it all down it, it comes out to being thrillers huh, interesting is this not working? Um, now, for myself, I have to say, I first I was first introduced um, to your work through your short story, The Barons. Um, oh yeah, yeah, which was yeah. A, um, an H.P. Lovecraftian Thulian um, compendium. And I'm yeah, that is a uh, uh, interesting story behind it because uh, uh, John Betancourt uh, contacted me and said, you know. He was editing Weird Tales. Hmm. He said, we want to do an F. Paul Wilson issue. I said, oh, cool. What could be cooler than that? Right. And he said, you know, we need, I think, 20,000 words of fiction. It can be, you know, 10, 2,000 word stories or one 20,000 word stories or anything in between. And so I started writing The Barons. I said, you know, it's going to be Weird Tales, so it's, uh, I'm going to do something Lovecraftian. Hmm. And... Um, so I started on the Barrens because really the the New Jersey Pine Barrens is so Lovecrafty, and I I didn't oh, have to, <laughs> I, I didn't have to do much to um, you know make it look Lovecraftian, and then I get um, Bob Weinberg you know calls me up and says, "Hey, we're doing a Lovecraft anthology, you know, Lovecraft mm -hmm. Legacy, and are you interested?" I said, "Yeah, definitely, I'm interested," and yeah. I'm thinking, "Oh crap, I have this." Yeah. So what am I going to do with the Barons? The Barons is either going to go to Weird Tales or it's going to go to um, uh, Lovecraft's Legacy. So 
I said, you know, I, I told Bob I give him I give him the Barons, and so it wound up in Lovecraft's legacy. And I wound up doing Midnight Mass um, for Weird Tales, so it, you know it, it worked out. But um, things don't always go where you originally intend them to go. Don't I know it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Well, yeah, John and I are both uh, Jersey boys, so we're familiar with the Pine Barrens. That's an amazing place. Oh, absolutely. It's I was researching it, you know, for the Barons. I, I was out there and uh, I got lost. Oh, boy. Oh. Not good. <laughs> no. Because, you know, it had one of those, you know, in Jersey, they, they call them, you know, vanilla skies. And so it's really low hanging clouds that blot out the sun. So, mm. I mean, there's light, but you have no idea where the sun is. You have no sense of time or direction, yeah. Yeah. And they have these fire trails cut in through there. Oh, and yeah. in no, I mean, just, you know, it's just somebody on acid had drawn lines. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. So the, it's what so exactly happened. You drive down one, and the sand is very soft, so you drive down. So the sugar and you're like, okay, I'm going to turn around and go back. And you go back and it said, wait a minute, there's all these forks. <laughs> Which one did I, I come? Where did I turn? And <laughs> it's really scary because there are no tire tracks because they're sort of swallowed by the soft sand, and you know mm. everything has ruts. And yeah. it's just and there's no. The scariest part is that there's no litter. Yes. I mean, where do? Where is it that humans don't leave litter? Yeah. Yeah. It's a place where humans don't go. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's fairly pristine. I mean, where the hell am I? <laughs> Luckily, you know, yes, I had one of those things. I had a Jeep. Okay. I wouldn't go in without four wheel drive. But, oh yeah. But that, my my mirror had a compass on it, so I kept I kept kept it on N. <laughs> and so I knew if I kept going north, I would hit Route seventy. Eventually, yeah, <laughs> get seventy or seventy. Yeah, I hit Route seventy. But you know, it's scary. If I didn't have that. I, I would have had no idea what direction I was heading. Oh, yeah. Do we used to go camping back there all the time. the Pine Barrens without a compass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, like John was saying, we used to go camping there all the time. And you could just step off one of those trails, walk 10 feet, close your eyes, spin three times, open your eyes, and then be like, where the hell am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All I'm pine trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're all the same. Yep. Cool. Um, I, I'm going to segue real fast into tabletop gaming because I always just I, I just assume with uh, authors who write um, fantasy and 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 any, any kind of fiction really has in some way, shape, or form have gamed in some fashion. Now, is that true for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm no. not. Or, yeah, well, I'm not into games. Um, I I love um, I love like choose your own adventure type of stuff. Okay, but um, I was I could never get into Dungeons and Dragons or what? no, sorry, <laughs> sorry. It just to me was a waste of time. I don't play card games. Period. You know, I, I just it, it it's I've always got something else to do. Gotcha. And, no, I can respect that. Um, that's why I don't play golf. I'd much rather write than play golf. 
Well, I, I'm, I'm totally into that. Yeah, that's, that's much rather yeah. right than that. So, um, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll play Texas Hold'em once in a while, but um, yeah, but I, I do love I. But and the other thing was, it's the um, the physical, mm. the dexterity that 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 it comes with. Um, I used to play, you know, video games shooters and things like that with my my son-in-law but i would be over his shoulder and he would have the controls and he had the great thumbs and all that <laughs> stuff. There you and go. i would say you know wait a minute you know i think you can shoot that light out and that, that type of stuff and so i would yeah i would be sort of guiding him i i could get the strategy and i, I love that kind of thing but whenever i sat down i just i i just not did not have the dexterity and i i remember um, the first Resident Evil game. Mm. I I don't think I got past the first three zombies. <laughs> you know? They killed me right away, and and I knew they were coming because I you know I, I I do it over and over again, and I just did not you know. But then I would be with my son-in-law, and he would get us through all the rooms, and then we would play the note on the piano, and the door would open, and you know, all, all that kind of stuff which i really like that that's the kind of stuff i like and, yeah, and sure. stuff like um okay i was i was i was really good at mist <laughs> <laughs> i remember mist <laughs> yep no no dexterity necessary it was right. all cerebral and hey, well. uh, you know and I, I matt matt costello and i he did the seventh guest and um, there was really no dexterity, much dexterity in that either. It was all, you know, thinking. And and, uh, and so Matt and I went on to, to to design a lot of video games. And he's still doing it. Um, he's still quite active in, in game design. Cool. I, I give you credit for trying Resident Evil. At that point, I had already given up on video games. After Super Nintendo, there was too many buttons for me. I was like, you know what? I, I can't do it. <laughs> Well, you know, I I had the free download of um, Doom, you know, oh. <laughs> the first level or something like that, and that was kind of fun. But you know, um, I don't know if I ever got all the way through it without getting you know killed every time. So, mm. all right, let's shift gears back to HP uh, Lovecraft. But what was your introduction to Lovecraft? My introduction was a an anthology called. Um, Oh, the macabre reader, uh, edited by Donald Walheim, and it was 1958, 1959, and it had this really cool, you know, garish co cover. And I picked it up because back then you couldn't buy horror fiction; there really wasn't any. Everybody was doing science fiction, uh, and I really wanted horror. Hmm. And you know, you could find some Richard Matheson. You might find, you know, some uh, some Brown with his his uh, super short stories, but um, just wasn't any horror out there. And so I picked it up and it had all these great. I had never heard of anybody in it, but when you look at the table of contents, you say, "Wow, it's a who's who of horror fiction." Um, Robbie Howard, you know, um, and then it was one story that. It was the, the thing on the doorstep oh, yeah. by H.P. Lovecraft. And I read that thing and I said, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most amazing story I've ever, I was 13. 
Hmm. The most amazing story I've ever read. And I said, who is this guy, H.P. Lovecraft? And it just so happened that I went out, you know, hunting through the paperback racks, and I found this thing called Cry Horror, which was an Avon paperback. And it was a reprint of The Lurking Fear. And it's all H.P. Lovecraft. And I just, you know, practically overdosed on him there. <laughs> and I just said, I'm 13. I was saying, I know where I want to go to college. I want to go to Miskatonic University. <laughs> and I actually looked it up. I, I got a college catalog out of the library, and there was no Miskatonic. You know, it went from, you know, M-I-R uh, or uh, to um, M-I-S-S. There was no M-I-S-K anywhere. And I thought the page was missing or something. Because <laughs> it made it sound so real. Right. That, that Arkham was a real town and Miskatonic was a real university. And I I wanted to get into that forbidden book section. That's where I really wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to go there. And so I, I finally realized this guy, you know, he had fabricated the whole thing, but made it so real that, you know, and, but the thing that really, you know, he, he sort of in a way changed my life in that, you know, I was, you know, I was a Catholic school boy and, you know, there was, you know, God and the father in heaven and there was Satan in hell and everything, you know, in between was, you know, sort of taken care of. And then along comes this guy Lovecraft and he just so he doesn't even bother throwing it out. It's like it didn't even exist. Yeah. And there is no good guy in his universe. And most of the most of the universe if you're lucky is indifferent and most of the time it's really out for you and so i'm thinking this actually makes more sense to me <laughs> than the other. and um so it sort of really changed my whole view i mean and he brought you know, up till then, all the horror fiction I read, you know, had ghosts and, and goblins and all that kind of stuff. And he brought this materialism to it. Mm. That, you know, it was really nothing spiritual about it. It was really just the universe is, you know, if it's, if it's not just the void, it's ugly. And it's out to get you. And that just changed my whole not that I ever accepted any of his gods or any of that stuff, but, but that idea mm. that the universe is really not benign. No one's looking out for you and you're on your own buddy. Yep. And um, so that really has informed my fiction, my fiction ever since is that um, that cosmic horror, that idea that, there are intrusive cosmic entities out there. And you, and I think it was Scott Connors at Necronomicon who said, you know, that there's, there's three ways of approaching cosmic horror. <clears throat> and uh, one of them was Clark Ashton Smith, whereas, okay, it's all hopeless and useless and we're gonna die so let's just accept it and go with it, okay? And then there's the Lovecraft way is that it's all hopeless and we're going to die, but you know what? 
let's step back and watch and wait and see what happens. You know, we're, we're helpless, but, you know, maybe we'll luck out. And then there's a Robert E. Howard uh, approach, which is, yeah, it's all hopeless. It's out to get us, but we're going to go down swinging. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the perfect triad of, mm-hmm. of the approach yep. to cosmic horror. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Scott at the, uh, the Lovecraft Film Festival. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he said, you know, he, he said that's, you know, he had sort of put that together. And I thought, I thought that was great, you know, summation of those, the three icons of um, cosmic horror. And that's, they, they all had different approaches to it. And I, I, I think of Repairman Jack as a, sort of a, a Robert E. Howard uh, character in that, you know, he, he faces that stuff, but he says, you know, I'm going down swinging. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, do you have a, a particularly favorite story of Lovecraft? Um, you know, yeah. Well, the thing on the doorstep, because it is so perverse. I mean, when you think about it, uh, I didn't know this when I read it at 13. I went back because someone said, what was your first Lovecraft story? You know, I think it was Dagon magazine before they folded. Mm. Uh, and they asked me, uh, he said, could you write something on your first Lovecraft story? And I said, okay. So I went back and read um, the thing on the doorstep. And not only did I realize that I had stolen the whole setup for my novel, Sibs, <laughs> which I had no idea that I had done. But when I read this, it was really embarrassing. I was saying, holy crap. <laughs> I had forgotten all about this, but it, it is so imprinted itself on my subconscious that it came out in sibs. But the thing is, you have this wizard who has, he's a male, he has taken over the, he is dying, so he's taken over the body of his daughter, Asimeth. And then the daughter goes and marries this guy um, who's, a, who's related to Pikmin, from Pikmin's model. Hmm. And obviously, if they're married, I, I suppose they're having sex, but here's this guy in a gal's body having sex with this other guy so that he can take over his body and become male again. I mean, how... How gender twisted is that? You know, for <laughs> it's like it's gonna be pretzel, yeah. In the thirties and published in Weird Tales. Yeah. You know? and, and it totally went by my thirteen year old head, but when I went back, you know, as an adult and read it, I'm saying, Oh my god. <laughs> this this yeah. is total, totally twisted and I loved it, you know. Yeah. So, I mean that that rem- is, you know People like talk about the you know at the mountains of madness and all that kind of stuff and that's all cool and that but this little story, you know, and it opens up with I've just put six bullets through the head of my best friend yeah. and, I hope, and I hope by this account that I can prove that I'm not guilty of murder, you know, and it's just I mean what an opening line, I I, I paraphrase but you know but that was when you know at 13 when i read that opening line i said oh i gotta read this story <laughs> you know there's no way i'm not going to read this story so uh, yeah so the thing about doorstep to me is it's it is not iconic cosmic horror 
Lovecraft, but it is my favorite story. Right. And it's interesting too, that you bring that up, you know, considering his relationship with women and stuff to like, how does that play into that? I don't know how that story is written. Oh, you oh, know? You the, the character, the narrator is Lovecraft. Yeah. Is Lovecraft. I mean, you just, there's so many parallels to his life in it. And there's some really great Lovecraftian fiction being done now. I mean, um, Oh, what was the one? Black Tom's Blues or something like that? Uh, Ballad of Black Tom. Ballad of Black Tom. God, it was great. Um, and that and that's you know turns on you know Lovecraft's. Um, you know, everybody makes a big deal of his 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 racism, but you know everybody was a racist back in 1920. I mean, that was that was the culture then. That was the zeitgeist. Mm. That you know. This was how these these races were inferior, and that's just the way everybody looked at them. I mean, eugenics was all the rage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never knew that. I I found that I saw that on the History Channel. I was watching some weird, you know, one of those, you know, uh, crazy American things or whatever, and it was like, yeah, they they sterilized like sixty thousand people here in the U.S. Yeah. in whatever the twenties or thirties. I was like, what? I'd never yeah. heard that before. Well, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was for it. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs was was big for on eugenics. I mean, th- there's a whole list uh, of uh, quote unquote celebrities from, of the time, but that was the science of the times. And just like you know, global warming is the science of this time. Who knows what you know? What, you know, 50 years from now, when when we're you know, in a new ice age, everybody's going to look back and say, oh, those assholes. You know, how did they believe that? How did they, you know, Bill Nye, the anti-science guy, how did you know, he want to jail people who didn't believe in in global warming? You know, and here we are, you know, in our parkas in July. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to turn out that way, but the thing is it could. And it just, it just is just the zeitgeist. This is what everybody. This is what you're supposed to believe. And back then, you were supposed to believe that African Americans were mentally inferior. I mean, and it was scientifically known, quote unquote. So, yeah, right. are you going to blame the guy for for believing what everybody else believed? Plus, don't forget, this is the guy that didn't get out of bed for ten years when he was a teenager. <laughs> a key factor. Yes. So he's he's. He's really totally depressed, so he's not really, yeah, a uh, a fully mentally, or let's say emotionally, uh, competent person, and so he's got a lot of stuff, you know, going against him. Plus, he was afraid of anything that wasn't like him. So, I mean, there's all that stuff going on, and then, but then, but then, you know, for world fantasy to to take his his image. And it's a Gay and Wilson image of all people. That's Gay and Wilson. This is one of the, the icons of our our genre. And to to toss that in the trash for some freaking tree. I mean, come on. That's that's it's to me. It's just unconscionable. But 
I don't want to. I don't want to go any further into that. <laughs> they're very a uh, hot button issue in the in the community. Not not only yeah. I mean, Love Lovecraft's racism, like you'd mentioned, and then you know the when we had Niels on the other day, we were, you know, obviously talking about the 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 award and all that kind of stuff, and it, it's very you know, push button and, and, you know, more of a, of a move now, like, you know, say the battle of black Tom to more inclusivity, uh, you know, kind of six in the craw of, of people. And I, I mean, I, I can understand that. I mean, I, you know, for, you know, people who've been marginalized, you know, in large part for a, a good portion of our, you know, American history. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, but, yeah, we're, but we're talking about, you know, a genre, yeah. And, you know, for some wimpy person to get up there and say, oh, I don't feel comfortable about accepting this award, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be up there without Lovecraft, you know? Exactly. And, exactly. and this convention wouldn't be here without Lovecraft. And guess what? They take the award. So, you know, why don't you just leave it there? If, if you're so uncomfortable, then just leave it there. But no, they take the award. And then somebody goes later on and changes it. But the thing is, this whole convention from its inception in 72 in Providence is based on Lovecraft. That's why it was in Providence. That's why the first one was in Providence. And that's why you're here. That's why you're getting this award. That's why you can even write this fiction and, and get it published and write something about a ghost that, you know, without a ghost that's rattling chains. And it just, it just drives me up the wall because they have <laughs> no, no concept, no cultural, you know, our genre has a culture and it has developed over decades and decades. And, and, to, and to, to be ignorant of that, and and to think you know you should throw it out the window just because of the zeitgeist in which this guy wrote it is to me it's, it's ignorant and it's short-sighted and the, your, your cultural iq for the genre is wanting and can we stop now <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, yeah let's... <laughs> <laughs> we don't really want to go down that road. I don't think. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, but but so but to, to follow up in a different tack, then um, where do you see the fic the the future of weird fiction uh, moving to? I mean, we have things like you know the Battle of Black Tom and, and stuff like that. So uh, do you see it growing? You know, are we? You know, Cthulhu is as popular as ever, and you know, plushies and all these sorts of things. Is, is there a uh, you know where do we go from here kind of thing? You know, um, it, it just amazing me, amazes me because I, I, I see more and more Lovecraftian fiction, mm. and it seems it, it seems to be expanding rather than contracting. Um, but I, I, I would like to see it move beyond. I mean, I, I use the cosmic horror. Uh, in a different way than he did in that I don't have any gods, so to speak. And I, I don't, I'm against Nate. I think that was a mistake he made, but everybody else loves it. You know, Cthulhu and 
all the other ones I can't pronounce in the go to young and all that kind of stuff. Um, humans get more comfortable with the unknown when we can name it. And once we can name it, we can pigeonhole it. And once we can pigeonhole it, we can make plush toys out of it. And I prefer to leave them unnamed. And the thing is, if they are that big, if they are that powerful, they probably don't need names. And so uh, I've never named my, for, I mean, I've had people name them called the ally and the otherness and that type of thing. But those are things that the humans call them and they don't really have names. And I think that's a better way to approach it. Um, but the, you know, but it continues the idea that you're not in control. And I think that's that's the biggest part of, of cosmic horror. And I think the most effective part is that you're not in control. You may think you are, but when you look out and you say, well, wait a minute, something else is toying with you and making decisions for you or, or manipulating history. And I think that I, to me, that's in, in Panacea, there's a character, Rick, and his theory is that Human sapience is really rare. That level of sapience is rare in the multiverse or whatever. And that it attracts attention. And that's sort of the second part of the uh, the Chinese curse. You know, the, may you come to the attention of someone in authority. And um, to me, that has been, that's always been terrifying to be, you know, the object of the attention of someone in authority. And so, um, so I play with that in, in, in this new series I'm doing, the Panacea. They, the publisher asked me to give it a title. I, you know, the, the series, I said, okay, the ice sequence, you know, the ice being, you know, intrusive cosmic entities. And, um, but they play, they're, they're way in the background, but they, they're sort of instigating things. I play a lot with chaos theory where you know small variations in initial conditions have big consequences down the line and um you know the butterfly effect <laughs> so uh i i am playing with a, a lot of that in the new the new series um so i think that's one way to take the lovecraftian thing um but a lot of a lot of news stories. I mean, Tor just sent me a free novella, and it's you know it, the narrator was a survivor of the uh, 1928 FBI raid on Innsmouth, and yeah, you know, that's <laughs> you can't get more you know Lovecraftian than that. I would say that's a little too close. I mean, you ought to try to get away from that. You know, um, you know, move on. Um, it's always great. It's interesting. Um, but, you know, you know, let's move a little further on. You can still take the, um, you know, the, the feeling that there's, you know, there's something out there and it's exerting control and you're trying your best to keep you know control of your life and this thing is trying to exert control in your life and that type of thing is i think a good part of horror fiction i mean 
I, I don't read a lot. I, I read a lot, but I, I mean, I read a lot of science fiction. I read thrillers. Um, I just read a story that was definitely influenced by X-Files, but it was really so much better than, than most of the X-Files uh, <laughs> episodes I've seen. Uh, and, and, and it was done very personally. It was, it was really a family drama, but with, you know, alien abductions and stuff like that, that, that really is the way it impinged on the family. And, and um, it was excellent. It was absolutely excellent. And it's coming out from St. Martin's, but it'll be a while still. To that. Rio Ewer's last book, um, the I can't remember the title because it had a different title when I read it. Oh. <laughs> and, and so they've changed the title. Uh, I think it's The Forgotten Girl. I think that's what it's called. It's excellent, though. And it's it's true horror fiction. And it's the same type of thing where, you, you know, you, it's not cosmic at all, but you, it's it's also a loss of control, a loss of memory, and really, and who are you but your memories? And so, if somebody just snatches a, a a portion of your memories away. You know, you lost a part of yourself and a part of your being and a part of your life and a part of your history, and uh, and someone who can do that to you. And this person had did not do it for a bad reason, but. Someone who was threatening that person is very bad. So it's, you know, it, it's the Forgotten Girl. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, Rio is an excellent writer. Um, and this is the first time I read a, a book length uh, piece by him, but he, it's, it's really good. Cool. So, cool. Jot that down. Uh, I just wanted to jump back real quick. Um, so you're talking about leaving things sort of unnamed and, and not, you know, being able to kind of com compartmentalize that. I, what, that was more of a uh, Durla thing, right? I mean, because, you know, the, the conceit in most Lovecraft stories, I I can't even describe what it is. It's, it's unknown. It's unnameable. It's, you know, I mean, we do have Cthulhu and we do have some other things, but but I feel like a lot of that cosmology was more under Durla's tutelage, wasn't it? You know, I, I am not, um, you know, I, I'm not academically... Uh, you know, educated in that, in that kind of stuff. Um, I could be I, wrong. I know there are people who, there's the Durleth stuff and the, the, the Lovecraft stuff. And um, I just remember reading anything I could at, at the time, anything in any of the Arkham house books um, and not paying too much attention as to who was writing them. And, trying to separate, you know, who, who was doing what. So I, I really can't speak to that. Um, I, you know, so I, I don't know what, what Durlith was doing as opposed to what Lovecraft was doing, sure. to what Wanderai was doing. I'm, I'm just <laughs> not knowledgeable enough to speak to that. I'm probably not either. <laughs> I'm, I'm you wander around Necronomicon and everybody knows that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all have opinions. We should have paid um, more attention to the uh, to the yeah, the, and and they'll tell you all about them. Sometimes my eyes glaze over. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> the jewel comes out. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm also a Sax Romer fan. You know, I, I just I just love I love Fu Manchu. I just think those books are just amazing. And and I, and I've done my own pastiches. 
Um, I played in a lot of people's sandboxes just for the fun of it. And uh, cool. Sax Romer's uh, Fu Manchu is, is one of the ones I love to play. And I've, I've played in it quite a bit. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with Fu Manchu, but he is, you know, you know everyone likes, it's popular now to put him down too because of, he was a racist. You know, and his opinions of they were called Orientals then, not Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, the Orientals were uh, definitely racist. But if you if you just read between the lines, there's also a tremendous amount of admiration for that culture. And and Fu Manchu, he's sort of like a a precursor of Hannibal Lecter in a sense that he has a code. He has a sense of honor. He has a purpose higher than just being a criminal and making money. His idea is to get the white man out of China. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, in, in when, um, Sachs Roman was writing it in 1913. Maybe there was. They, that was not considered, you know, what, what someone should be doing because really the English belonged everywhere. And, <laughs> you know, uh, East, East India Company, I think, was gone by then. But basically their idea was, you know, they colonized everything, you know, and white man's burden. And, and, Fu Manchu had these most devious ways of killing people who stood in his, the way of his plans. And, but the thing was, he never lied. And if you came to a Mexican standoff with him and he said, you know, he's got all his people around and, but you know, you've got him at a disadvantage. He would say, okay, you can go. And if he said that, you could turn around and walk away and never have to worry, never look over your shoulder because you could go. He said you could go and you could go. Get in his way again later on, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so, so when you have a, a villain who is totally merciless, who will, who will do anything to kill you, and then he also has this sense of honor, it, it's... I, that was the first time I'd ever encountered a villain like that. And um, in the tomb, Kuzum, the the Hindu yeah. villain, is very much influenced you know, by Fu Manchu. Okay. I, I don't know if I was even conscious of it at the time, but when I look back, I say, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, we stand on everybody else's shoulders. I mean, nobody uh, stands alone. And, you know, I stand on Sax Romer's shoulders, I stand on H.P. Lovecraft's, and I definitely stand on Richard Matheson's. So, I mean, there's, there's all those people that we draw from, and nobody is, or I can't, it's hard to think of anybody who comes out of it and you can read and say, oh, you know, He's like nobody. He, he's he's totally his own. Um, I can usually find, I mean, in genre fiction, I can usually find, because I'm well-versed in genre fiction, 
But in other kinds of fiction, you know, I, I wouldn't have the antecedents to be able to say that this influenced this and that and that. But in genre fiction, I can usually pick out and say, oh, okay, he's been reading so-and-so, and he's been reading so-and-so. Um, and, and it's it's just, we build. You know, it's, it's a matter of building on the people who came before. And you try to take what they've done and take it in a different direction, take it in your own direction. Hmm. But to think you're you're totally sui generis, no, uh, I don't think there is anybody. That's for sure. Um, let's kind of switch gears just for a moment. Um, now you have a, quite an impressive resume. I mean, over fifty novels, hundred short stories. Um, though we, you mentioned this earlier that you'd rather than you'd rather be an act rather than. Um, video games and sitting down and, and playing a tabletop, you'd rather be writing. So there's, you, you've got the discipline down. Do you have a, any specific writing process? Now, do you sit down like every day and say, all right, for this block of time, I'm going to spend three or four hours and just write? Or is it, is it uh, more of a matter of just, you have the creative juices flowing, things are percolating, and then you sit down and maybe bang something out, and then you get up and you do something else, and then you maybe come back to it. I'm I've always curious about other authors' uh, uh, discipline. Um, yeah, I, I, I sit down every morning. It's the first thing I do after I, I make my first cup of coffee. I sit down. Yeah, I go through my websites, you know, um, repairmanjack.com and this and that, get all that stuff out of the way. And then I, you know, I fire up Word and I, I, I start writing. Um, I do my best writing in the morning. Um, First draft, I, I like to do 2,000 words a day, um, but absolute minimum 1,000. Because, you know, some days are easier than others. And some days, I'll, uh, you know, I can do, you know, three or four or 5,000. Um, wow. Yeah, th th those are rare. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I wish you were more confident. You find yourself really rolling and you keep going. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, you know, getting that thousand words is, is like pulling teeth. And other times it's just like, bang, okay, 10, 10 a.m., I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Or sometimes I'll switch to something else. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cur currently uh, preparing some stuff for, for Hollywood um, for adaptations of my stuff. And... Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm taking like one of my future science fiction novels and contemporizing it so it can be done in present day. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do the work on the first draft so much in the morning. And then as the afternoon comes on, then I'll, I'll start working on making this thing from, you know, I don't know what, <laughs> I can't even imagine what year it took place in, in the future, but bringing it down to the present. And, um, and sort of, you know, doing a treatment of, of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's that type of thing. So sometimes I'm working on two projects. One, you know, I, I did um, young adult repairman Jack books. I did three of those. And basically I was working on them the same way okay. uh, at that time. And so I was putting out two books a year at that time. But the, the YA books tend to be shorter. So... 65,000 words as opposed to, you know, 110, like Panacea was 120, 
So it's yeah, that got a little out of hand. <laughs> I had been thinking of it, you know, because I've been doing all these repairman jack novels. I was delivering one every year, and that was cooking in the back of my head. So by the time I got around to writing it, I had so, all sorts of stuff backed up, and um, so that book went, you know, longer than I really wanted it to, but. I just looked around for ways to shorten it. And I said, you know, yeah, I was 120,000. I got it down to 118, you know, big deal. <laughs> I shaved off 2,000 words. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I write pretty lean. So, I mean, it, 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 it's not easy for me, you know, to cut stuff. Uh, and even the, my editor couldn't find much, you know, to cut. So it's oh, always good. Uh, Does so it you mentioned Oh, good. Yeah. I was gonna say, does it ever get any easier as as prolific as you are, or or does each new project come and it's like you know you just have all those same sort of struggles? Um, it certainly is easier now. I mean, uh, I used to outline a lot more heavily, hmm. and um, you know, sometimes I did. I would do like a really intense outline and i did it with one book implant i i did it it was i forget it was just very detailed every point of view every scene uh every shift everything and when i went to write the book i said oh crap i feel like i've already written it <laughs> so i just i said i'm never doing that again and i'm, I'm up to but the thing is I always believe I have to know how it's going to end before mm -hmm. it starts because I think you owe your reader a really good ending, something that's going to, um, I mean, I was a biology major in, when I went to Georgetown, I, I, I went in as a biology major, but my English boards, SATs were so good that they stuck me in honors English. And which I didn't really want to be in, but especially since it was Greek drama. And I said, holy <laughs> crap, God, what am I going to do with Greek <laughs> And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because the way the Greeks structured the drama, and it's all about you know, building toward catharsis. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me. And so it's always been something that I've always, when I've written books, it's always been, you got to have catharsis, build up all the dramatic tension and don't let it leak off, blow it off. Hmm. And, you know, that's satisfying. You've got all this steam and just like, get it off and don't let it dribble away. You know, if it goes off with a whimper, <sighs> You know, it, it just, it's not satisfying. When you, when you, when you blow off that tension, the reader closes the book and says, that was a story. And what else did he write? That type of thing. So, yeah. and that's the kind of books I like. I mean, I've always written books that I want to read. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's the best way to approach it. You, you really can't, I, if, if you ask me to write a, a a literary novel or a romance, I just couldn't do it. And <laughs> really, I, I, I just don't think I could write about, you know, some middle-aged professor with a midlife crisis. I just, 
I mean, I know people like that. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to write about people I can meet on the street, and I don't want to write about events that are going on in the house next door. I want, you know, I want something. The promise of fiction is to take you places where you can't go, and show you things that you can't see. Absolutely. And if you if you if you got you know you got the, pro, the the professor next door, that's hardly fiction, and it's certainly not anything you know that you can't see, and you can't experience. So, you know, what's the point? So, I mean, I. Mean, I I, I just don't understand, you know, betraying the promise of fiction by writing such mundane bullshit. So yeah. I, I can't do that. So I, I want to really give you an experience. I want to give you tension and I want to give you a really nice finale where not everything's tied up, but enough stuff's tied up that you feel um, you feel you've been told a story mm -hmm. and I, I, I go on about this a lot, but I think the thing that makes a story satisfying is symmetry. There's no symmetry in real life. Real life is really chaotic. Hmm. What goes around does not come around, as we all know. And so if in a story, something that goes around comes around, you made it better than, you know, there's people who say, oh, that's not like real life. I said, yeah, that's why we call it fiction, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's better than real life. This is the We're way satisfying. it should be. Hmm. And th that's why people love religion. Religion imposes symmetry on the chaos of, of life. And so does really good fiction. Fiction imposes this, this symmetry. And... It's satisfying. I said, yes. You know, it doesn't have to be everything has to, you know, not every thread has to be tied up, but, you know, enough to see that it has come around. And Mark Twain has always said that, you know, nonfiction is so much harder to write than fiction because fiction has to make sense. Yes. And it does. And so when all of a sudden you make sense of life in your fiction, people say, yeah, that's the way it should be. And I love it. I wish, I wish life was like that. They're doing that unconsciously. They're not doing that consciously. But that's, you know, that's what got the storytellers sitting around you know, the fire. That's what got them the extra Bronto burger because they, they told a good story that, that made sense of life because life doesn't really make sense really it just does not make sense <laughs> that's for sure okay i'll jump in uh okay. <laughs> <laughs> so your camera's off so there's no physical cues here <laughs> no there's there's a there's a bit of a lag here i had my uh that's why i had the uh the video off Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, you know, as you had mentioned, your stories kind of run the gamut from cosmic horror to, uh, you know, sci-fi and, you know, fantasy and you know, all these different things. Do you have a preference, a genre preference yourself? Um, no, I'm, 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 I only read genre fiction, but 
I, I read about all different genres. I mean, and in all different um, times. I mean, I will read, um, you know, Hammett's The Continental Op. And then I will, you know, I, I'll be sent something from one of the editors at Tor and say, can you comment on this? And it's, you know, futuristic science fiction. Um, and so I, I get, I wind up reading a lot of things I wouldn't choose because they're sent to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that they send them to me because a lot of the stuff is very good. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have picked it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm reading, a, I, my, my reading is a lot more eclectic than it would be if I was choosing it. Hmm. But the thing is, in a sense, I'm passively receiving, you know, books from editors, as well as picking out my own stuff. I mean, um, there are, you know, Open Road Media has a lot of low-priced editions, you know, Kindle books and such, of, you know, fiction from the turn of the century, even, you know, the the 1900s or the, the 1920s, and, and, you know, classic mystery stuff. Uh, Otto Penzler, I think, does a lot of the choosing, and uh, he runs a mysterious bookshop and mysterious press. And he, uh, he do often does, you know, introductions on them. But, I mean, uh, people I've only heard of, and all of a sudden, there it is. I can buy it for 99 cents. Hell, you know, <laughs> stick it in my Kindle. I'm going to, you know, I'll, 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 I'll sample it. <laughs> and, um, I mean, there, there are ones I, 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 I've heard, you know, like Boston Blackie. He was, a, a, you know, a, a thief. Um, and I found him totally in, insufferable as a character. <laughs> I, I read two or three of his stories. And I said, uh, no, no more for me. Um, and there are others that um, I just read A Taste for Honey by H.F. Hurd. Um, it was written in 1941, and it's a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. And it is so, it's written in, in a very erudite style. It's just the kind of writing I don't like, but it is so well done. I mean, this guy's command of the language is just phenomenal. And you just, these, these long paragraphs, which I usually hate, here I am reading them and really enjoying them. It's, it's a very slim mystery story. Um, but it's just so well written that, and is really one of the first, you know, Sherlock Holmes pastiches. It doesn't even mention his name. However, you know, the character is, a, he, he's retired and he keeps bees and he, he calls himself Mr. Mycroft. So uh, everybody knows it's Sherlock. Mm -hmm. But uh, at that time, Sherlock Holmes uh, estate was, you know, very vigorous in pursuing any copyright infringements. So this guy somehow got away with it by doing Mr. Mycroft. But uh, okay. it's, it's still 
wonderfully written. And, and if, if it hadn't been offered to me for 99 cents or something like that from, you know, an email, uh, I never would have even thought of looking at it. So I'm constantly, but again, it's genre fiction. I'm, I'm only interested in genre fiction. I just don't want, you know, something that's totally real world. Mm. I, I, I've got the newspapers, you know, I've got, you know, the internet and I've got all my, <clears throat> my news. Yep. I've got, you know, I don't want to my leisure time to be spent. It's, it's the same way. I'm, I'm, I just, you know, maybe the the black uh football players have have a case with kneeling i just don't want politics brought into football i go i sit down mm. to watch football or game any, or any anything really away from that crap yep. you know and yeah. so it's i'm not saying they don't have an issue but the thing is don't put it on the field i don't want it you know it's just it, that's me that's fine I don't want it. I I I just want to get away from football. Has always been my escape from politics in the real world. It's just like a bunch of you know big guys banging against each other and throwing the ball and all that kind of stuff. Really cool stuff. You know, don't bring the other stuff in. Agreed. So, what are your thoughts on the on the rise of self publishing? And it seems to be sort of a double edged sword where you know anyone can do it, but anyone can do it. I mean, it sort of sets the bar rather rather high for decent writing um i've i'm really for it i i think it's great mm. and you know i i, I have read again i'm saying i read all sorts of stuff and i've read stuff that's been self-published and it's really good and I'm, I'm, I'm reading i'm saying why isn't this being published by you know uh, one of the big five and and you know duh sit back there's only so many books the big five can publish yes. there are a lot of very publishable books being written that just don't they can't fit into the list there's too mm -hmm. many of them and so i think self-publishing is great and it, it, it lets people even if it never sells anything you know you wrote it and you get it out there and it's published yeah. and it's yeah. there and you know more power to you for finishing that book um i mean i i've, I've self-published things myself that um i mean tracy carboni and i we uh wrote a, a medical thriller called the uh prometheus cure um the Proteus cure i'm sorry and um we got a, a deal from one of the big five and it wasn't a good deal and they wanted every single right. Oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. And for not a, a lot of money. And I, you know, I said to Tracy, this is, you know, this is your chance, you know, to be published by the Big Five. But, you know, we can do this on our own. Yeah, and the return is so much better. Yeah. And, and she said, yeah, I thought, you know, she, I thought she would say, no, let's go with them. And she said, no, let's do it ourselves. And so we did it ourselves. And, you know, the thing is, you know, we, we've about earned what their advance was. And we still have all the rights. We own every single one of those rights still. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, you know, it's part of her, you know, legacy. It's part of my legacy. Um, and I, I published stuff that really, uh, I just did a, a book called Ephemerata, which is 
all this, you know, minutia and bullshit I published, you know, over 40 years of, of, of writing, little pieces here and there, you know, I put them all together, put them in an ebook, and um, I'm about to have, you know, the, the, the second edition come out because I've added extra stuff in. And it's all the stuff that, from book reviews to, um, I didn't, my movie reviews are somewhere else, but, and just appreciations and all this kind of stuff I've done, introductions to books and over the, over the decades, and put them all together in one spot. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I sell it for $3.99. I don't care if it sells anything. The thing for me is that it's there. Right. It's all in one spot. And, you know, and my fans, they buy it. And, you know, as you know, somebody wrote to me and said, you know, I've been up all night reading this thing because I can't stop. <laughs> it's That's fantastic. It's just, you know, little bits of this and that, you know, when I met Lauren Nero, you know, when I met this person, when I met, you know, the Ronettes, you know, it's just um, all sorts of personal stuff and, and impersonal stuff. So, but it's all in one spot. And that, to me, that's important. And, um, but I've also done, I did my Yellow Peril, three Yellow Peril uh, novelettes. Uh, I, I published them under, you know, Sex Slaves of the uh, Dragon Tongue. And that, that's only been self-published. No one else's. But it's only 30,000 words. So it's also stuff that's too short to really be published by, you know, one of the big five. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it. And Sarah Penborough and I, we did a 52,000 word. Is it a novella or is it a novel? I don't know. <laughs> but it was, it was too short. So, I mean, we did, we had a small press do the hardcover. And we, we you know, we put out the... Uh, uh, the trade paperback and and the ebook on our own, and you know it's you know it's, it's every year we get money from it. It's just um, so I, I've gone that route when uh, there's no other way to go. So um, I just think I just think it, it's it gives somebody and the thing is it gives you hope. Um, if you're a starting out writer and you know you're going to get it published and maybe somebody will see it, maybe somebody will pick it up, maybe it'll, it'll catch on. I mean, it does happen. I mean, look at The Martian and things like that. You never know what's going to happen. You can't count on that, though. You got The thing is, you're writing because you love to write. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, then you can publish it and somebody can you know somebody's going to buy it mm -hmm. and 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 really that's all that, that matters i think is that it's out there it's, it's it's there to be read you're you're writing to be read you put it out there otherwise you let these you know the editors i mean our, an editor has got 10 books on their desk and which one are they going to pick? They're all equal in quality, or maybe not. Maybe they're not all equal in quality. One is by Snooky, you know. <laughs> Holy crap, you know. We can sell this. And that's really what, it's not quality. It's what we can sell. Mm -hmm. How do I market this? And, 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 and that's often 
the big determiner is is not the quality of the book it's how they can market it yeah, and the thing right. you can have a great book and it lands on the desk of someone who bought a book just like that or a little too similar to that last week hmm. you're going to get rejected nothing wrong with your book but we already got one in the pipeline that, that's mm -hmm. too much like that yeah so if it had landed in the down you know down the hall you might have sold it i mean it, it that's that's part of the crapshoot i was going to say it is a crapshoot yeah yeah i mean and it, and it is a crapshoot um i mean i was lucky i i sold my you know early science fiction i sold them to john campbell i took one of those novelettes and expanded it or continued it on to a novel and outline form and i sent it to doubleday yeah and three months later i heard from Doubleday, and they said we want to buy it and it seems so easy but, but the fact is i look back later you know john campbell the father of modern science fiction had already bought part of it so all of a sudden they got instant credibility mm -hmm. and and that's why i got a look and that's why i got a sale so um if if it hadn't been if part of it hadn't been published by campbell i may not have ever sold that you know i can't say for sure either way because i think it was a wonderful book but <laughs> As all my books are, right. um, but yeah, you know, again, it, it's there, there are so many factors that you can't see that you know, that are under the table and uh, under the rose, sub rosa, that um, you know. It, sometimes it, it's it, it's being in the right place at the right time, like the keep. The keep was right. the the right book at the right time in the right place. Um, because everyone was doing small town horror. Everyone was doing Salem's Lot and Carrie. Mm -hmm. And I went and did this big World War II cinemascope book, you know, in the Transylvania Alps and his castle and all that kind of stuff. And people hadn't seen that. So they said, oh, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. And so yeah. if I had done it 10 years later, who knows? You know, right. someone may have beat me to it. So. so you say it was the right book at the right time and, and you know, kind of like, you know, was a standout piece as, as a novel. Is it kind of like your biggest success and simultaneously like, ugh, and there's a movie? <laughs> well, there was a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but, the, you, know, um, you know, I bitched about the movie for God knows how long. Um, you know, and, and at the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Festival, uh, they showed it two nights, and I, I did a running uh, roof tracks uh, commentary. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, we got a lot of laughs on that. Mystery Science Theater here. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it as a teenager. I, I couldn't tell you I remember anything about it at this point. <laughs> it was a very forgettable movie because it didn't make sense, but. Um, we did sell a lot of the uh, uh, movie tie-in edition, which was which was nice because you know people didn't know what was happening in the movie, so they they said it was based on a book. So you know people said, "Oh, let's buy the book, see what, see what was this was really about." 
And uh, so I got a lot of extra fans from that. Well, and even still, even with a good movie adaptation, the books are still always better. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it was a novel first, it's better. (laughs) It's just except except with Jaws. I gotta say that's true. That that is true. I actually read Jaws and I was like, "Wow, this is kind of like not really like the movie. <laughs> this is kind of dull." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I know Spielberg read the book and said, "Really, the only time the book comes alive is when the shark is there." And so he said, "I'm going to keep the shark in the movie." <laughs> Smart guy. Right, the affair and all the other stuff. We don't need any oh, yeah. of that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, bring on the shark. Well, you were talking about a couple of collaborations. How does how does writing with someone alter the experience for you as a writer? Well, um, well, like Tracy, Tracy had an idea, and she was just asking me about the medical aspects of it because she wanted to write this book, and. You know, I said, you're going at it backwards. You know, you should approach it from this angle. And she said, oh, okay. And then, you know, Nikon was over and I went home. And I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about it. I'm saying, you know, this thing is clawing at my mind here. I'm thinking, God, there's so many possibilities here if you do it this way. And finally, I called her up and I said, you know, I'd like to write this book with you. Yeah, and so we wrote it together. Um, but sometimes I with Sarah, it was I, I found a piece in her one of her, her novels, The Man of Flies, and it just suggested an image to me. And finally I started, you know, coming up with this scenario. And I said, you know, I, I got in touch with her. I said, I got this from your book. Um, do you want to write it together? Because if you don't, I'm going to write it myself. She said, well, let's write it together. And so she's in London. I'm in um, in New Jersey. And, you know, we wrote it sometimes in Google Docs and sometimes just sending um, documents back and forth. Um, we actually had, um, we set up an argument between the husband and wife in the story. And um, I see your cat there. Yeah. <laughs> it always hangs around um, when I'm doing something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we decided we'd have the argument in real time on Google Docs, you know, typing it out. And um, I took the female part because the female was religious and I had, I was raised as a Catholic. And, you know, she was raised without religion. So she took the guy who was, you know, atheist. And so we had this husband and wife argument. And um, it got really intense and because we really got into it. And she hurt my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she got, you know, she got, she got all this male, you know, um, uh, arrogance. And, you know, so it was, it, and we just did it. Basically, we, we only thing we changed with it was put in attribution. So, you know, who's saying stuff. Sure, sure. And, um, it's right there verbatim in the novel. Um, but it, you know, there things with you know, collaboration is when it's great when someone really surprises you and, you know, Sarah, you know, I said, you know, we had this 
character coming in from Egypt, and you know, Sarah's traveled, you know, from Africa to Heathrow all the time. She she um she vacations in northern Africa and stuff. And said, well, you do that scene because you know you know what it's like coming in. And so she did it and she it she put in stuff that you know we hadn't planned at all and it came out of the blue and I'm reading this thing. And I said, oh my God. It says, no, I really picked somebody good you know, to, <laughs> to collaborate with because God, she came up with something, a scene that just blew my mind. I said, where did that come from? But it's wonderful, you know? And so that's, that's the kind of stuff that makes you, you know, just that's what makes collaborating wonderful when, when someone can just, you know, you know, punch you in the face like that with, it, with the, their writing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very but cool. The other, the, you know, the other part of it is that um, I'm very anal about writing, and um, I have to have the last polish. It's just, <laughs> it's just my thing that I want things a certain way. I want things paragraphed a certain way. Um, hmm. I do not want to see there are or there is or anything like that. Um, passive constructions drive me nuts. So, you know, I have to have permission to to, to adjust those things. Um, so if you work with me, that's, you know, you sort of have to accept that. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, John's. Yeah, you just described John basically. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm curious, and you you probably get this. Uh, forgive me if you get if you've heard this countless times before. I have to know. Uh, it just seems to me that repairing the, the repairman Jack series is it would be fantastic on the big screen or. Oh, you, know, you just dropped out for me. I I did I missed. That's okay. Yeah. No, no, I'll I'll repeat. Um, it just seems to me the Repairman Jack series would will just totally lend itself well to a television series or just a big screen. Is that something we're going to see, or is that? Um, it's been in development hell since 1993. Wow. Yeah. So it's been through a lot of screenplays. Hmm. Um, the final, you know, the final one was the final screenplay was done by Chris Morgan. Um, who does you know Fast and Furious and Wanted and all those things? Um, and it was great screenplay, but by then everybody had seen it so many times, so many bad screenplays by by people that you know nobody wanted to do it. So now they're trying uh TV series, but you know, they just don't Beacon Films does not seem to be able to get anything going. I just you know. Go get Netflix in there. Joe Schmo and his, you know, uh, his, you know, his two-bit uh, copy, you know, copied character seems to be able to get uh, a TV series, and and the thing is also, you know, people have stolen from Jack over the years so much mm. that um, I, you know, I don't know if, how fresh he is anymore. Gotcha. Um, I mean, in in 1984, there was nobody like him, you know. In 2017, I don't know. Um, 
but I just don't think, you know, Beacon doesn't seem to be able to get it going. So uh, I don't think it'll ever happen. I've just, yeah, I've given up. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Uh, I, I, you know, I have other properties. I have Midnight Mass. I have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other things that I, I would like to, to get into, into the hands of the right people, you know. Gotcha. Um, so the first the first book came out in '84, and then no follow up until '98. What, what was the what was the reason for the huge gap in between? Because it, it it was successful when it first came out, and, and people were interested in it. And yeah, I guess- it was on the New York Times bestseller list, but I didn't want to do a series. Um, I thought it would take over my writing career, and I already had the touch written in my head and I had pretty much, you know, black wind starting to outline in my head. And I said, I want to write those books. Um, as much as I like to read series, I didn't really want to write one. Hmm. And um, so I waited till 98 and I, I used it to get out of a, a multi-book contract. Um, <laughs> nice. Good maneuver. Well, you know, I had a contract for three, medical thrillers and you know the the first one was implant the second one was um deep as the marrow which has really turned into a political thriller with the doctor as protagonist and then i said i just don't want to do another medical thriller but i got got to do one more so i came up with this high techie uh plot and was perfect for jack so i had a doctor hire him you know (laughs) And so I said, that's a medical thriller. Um, and they weren't, you know, the publisher wasn't fooled a bit. But they liked the book. <laughs> <laughs> it became, you know, Legacies. And then I did, I said, okay. I'll do, and they said, you know, I really sold well. I said, Let's, can you do another? I said, well, all right, I'll do. I'll do Conspiracies. So I did Conspiracies. And I had such fun doing Conspiracies. So I went out and researched it at, you know, uh, Conspiracy Conventions. And um, and that's when I sort of decided, okay, I'm going to commit. I'll commit to a series. And guess what? It took over my writing career. <laughs> Just like I was afraid of back in 84. Right. So, um, you know, 23 books later, uh, I decided I'd say I'm going to call quits. But I am going to do another Repairman Jack novel. After I finish this novel, I'm going to do another Repairman. I'm just going to plug it in somewhere in the timeline. But I'm I'm just doing one every, you know, delivering one every fall. You know, it was just going to run it into the ground. And so I wanted to go on a high note and just be in control Hmm. uh, of the quality. And because really it's, it's the, you know, the cornerstone of my writing career. So, um, I don't. I didn't want to be like Spencer. As much as I liked the first ten, twelve Spencer books, I think you know the rest of them were were, were all derivative of the first dozen. So uh, I didn't want to do that. Um, you know, the, Parker wrote some of the best PI fiction ever in those first ten, twelve books, and then he just kept rewriting it and uh, just for a paycheck and I, I just don't think i'll find a paycheck somewhere else you know hmm. 
Right. It, well, so you say that, you know, it was, it was, you know, repetitive of the first, you know, dozen or so. Is it hard after 23 novels to, you know, kind of come up with a new scenario, a new twist, a new, you know, storyline to, to immerse people in? I don't know about that, but the thing was, see, I had, I always d- intended it as a limited series. And the backstory started to take over. Hmm. And once, you know, once that happens, because, you know, the big backstory was, you know, is the, the cosmic shadow war that's going on. And so that started taking over the front stories. And so once that starts happening, you have to sort of bring it to a close. Um, otherwise, you're just stringing people along. And you're stringing yourself along, too. And I'm not good at stringing myself along. So um, I get impatient. I think that, you know, that's why my books are pretty tight, despite, you know, being 100, 105,000 words long. There's not much excess verbiage in, in Repairman Jack novels. I mean, they are, there's a lot going on. And I just, I just don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, you know, the, the wall hangings in the room or you right. know, clothes <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I get down to it and, and get it in and get out and get going. And so, um, you know, the, once the backstory started expanding and taking over, then I knew I had to, end, you know, I knew I had to end it. Um, I thought I would end it uh, a little sooner but you know some of the storylines you know took longer to finish than I than I thought they would. But still, um, I knew when it was time to end it. You know, and you, and you got to know when it's time to 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 know when to hold them, know when to fold yeah. them. Like that, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Sure. Um, so, I mean, we we could probably do this for for like another hour, but we should probably let you go. But I do do have another question for you. Uh, kind of a, a wrap up sort of thing here uh, you know you're multi-award winner new york time bestseller do you have anything left that you feel like you need to conquer at this point <laughs> i mean you know you always want the number one hardcover bestseller <laughs> you know i don't see that ever happening but um it's i i would certainly like to see um repairman jack uh dramatized some way um, I think there's there's a lot to do, um, and and there's a lot you could do. I'd also like there's also, um, yeah, some of my other books. I I would like I would like to see some other people. I mean, I don't want people writing books for me, but I would love to see people on TV. You know, hmm. like I look at Justified. And I see, based on one novelette, Fire in a Hole, they did five seasons <laughs> of Raylan. And there's some of the best TV I've ever seen. I mean, and that that's the kind of, I'd like to see somebody say, you know, take, take Jack and just take him in some direction that I wouldn't have thought of. And I'd love to sit back and just enjoy that, you know, oh, yeah. and say, you know, all right. I, I kicked that off, but this guy is running with it and he's doing a great job. And 
I mean, look at look at look at Haven. You know the uh, sci-fi thing they they did from the Colorado Kid, mm. and um, you know, I, I I I was watching it for you know Scott Shepard. I, I know Scott Shepard, and he's just an amazing guy. He can just riff on. You give him a little idea, and he can just riff and riff and riff. And what they did with Haven, I mean, toward the end, it got a little crazy. But what they did with the Colorado Kid, and they made it into that whole five or six years long series. And, um, you know, and I, Stephen King and I email every once in a while. It's rare, but, you know, we, we do. And I, I just dropped him an email. I said, you know, you know they're doing you proud on, on Haven. He said, yeah, I know. I said, I don't believe, you know, well, yes, I don't believe where they've taken it. And so, I mean, I, I would like to be in that position and sit back and say, yeah, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do next season? Yeah. <laughs> and just, just take it where someplace I wouldn't go. And um, I, that's, that, that's really what, that's what's left to me. Uh, I think it just, you know, Take something I've done and riff on it, and um, you know it, it, it would be uh, what an honor. Yeah, yeah, not even an honor; it'd just be a kick, you know, <laughs> just to sit back every week and say, "Okay, what are they going to do this week?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. very cool. Yeah. It was a, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm sorry that we missed you at Necronomicon. I certainly look forward to uh, to seeing you at 19 for sure. If you're going to make I'll it up, and I'm going to be there. Right, Absolutely, excellent. Right. So yeah, definitely. You know, look me up, or I'll look you guys up, and you know, we'll have a beer. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. for yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, we appreciate you coming on. There's links to all your things in the show notes: Amazon page, Prayer Man Jack page, Twitter. Uh, you're active on Twitter, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, all right, it, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll uh, talk to you uh, again in the future. I hope. All right. No problem. I'd be glad to. All Excellent. Right. Take Great. care. Thanks Good you night. too. All right, everybody. We're gonna thank you all for checking this out. We had a great time talking to Paul. It was. Uh, Really cool getting him on, and uh, you know we hope that uh, you enjoyed it as well. We hope that you'll leave us some feedback on iTunes or or Podchaser or whatever your podcatcher of choices. That stuff is always super helpful. Uh, yeah. I know in our podcast update we said we weren't going to do this every week, but we are chugging straight along through the end of the year. So <laughs> I guess take it while you can get it. Uh, yeah. The guys from Burning Dragon or Burning Burning Games. Dragons Conquer America. That's where the dragons comes from. Uh, our AP is going to drop on Friday. We're going to release that every Friday this month. So you're going to get a little bonus content for that. Uh, their Kickstarter starts. If it wasn't today, it'll be tomorrow. If you're watching this live, uh, which is uh, the 2nd of November. So we hope that you check that out. It's, the card-based system is similar to Faith. If you're familiar with their previous Kickstarter, uh, it was a, a really fun game to play. It's a interesting take on, you know, the age of colonialism and, you know, magic and dragons. So that's pretty cool. 
Uh, Legends Coffee is available. If you are a coffee aficionado, uh, if you want to check that out, uh, there's links on the website, and I will post a link in the show notes. Uh, I should probably buy some myself, too. You probably (laughs) should. I have two bags on order myself right now. (laughs) I'm going to go do that this weekend. All right. Make sure you, you hit the link on the website to uh, do that. It's a super secret website. You have to have the link to order, uh, which is maybe not the best marketing strategy, but hey, go to the website. There's some cool stuff there. Maybe you'll like something. I don't know. Yes. Uh, it was good to have you on again. Uh, we don't get to do this together very often, so it was uh, it was cool having you on. Yeah, I'll be on a, I'll be on a few more. I want to get uh, it's, uh, some more talent, as it were, pull it in. So mm-hmm. that's cool. All right. And uh, thanks for everybody for checking out and uh, catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the legends of tabletop broadcast network for more gaming related content. Please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com. Hi, this is F Paul Wilson and we're Ready? For, oh, sorry. That's right. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. There you go. <laughs> All right. Hi, this is Paul Wilson, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. There we go. That's cool. We'll edit all that stuff on the back end. <laughs> <laughs>